Last year, we did a Facebook and blog post about some of the other cases that Tulare D.A. Powell and his ADA Brent Blyer had in their office in 1976. We were interested to see if the misconduct we saw in the Clifton trial was unusual and how important his conviction was to the DA's office. What we found was paying witnesses cash in exchange for testimony, dropping serious criminal charges in exchange for testimony and failing to disclose it to the court, bringing in women to have sex with witnesses in the DA's office and a TCSO patrol car to entice their testimony, giving heroin to an inmate in the Tulare County Jail to entice witness testimony, a man charged with a double homicide while he had a $1 million wrongful arrest and prosecution suit pending against the county, and, most interestingly, the reversal of that double homicide conviction based on the DA's failure to disclose an exculpatory witness and multiple instances of prosecutorial misconduct during the trial. One thing we've noticed is that people have a very difficult time believing abuse of power by police and prosecutors. These are public servants who are sworn to uphold the law, and we generally look up to them as heroes to protect us from bad guys. When we first started looking at the Tulare County cases, we encountered a number of residents who told us about local corruption within TCSO and the DA's office. We also heard theories about TCSO covering up for Donna's real killer and that the VR may have been a member of law enforcement. All of these ideas fell totally outside our personal experiences with the justice system. We'd seen terrible biased investigations, cases prosecuted on scant evidence, and good faith wrongful convictions, but never intentional misconduct. In our world, police and prosecutors did not institute malicious prosecutions. They cared only about arresting and convicting the actual perpetrator and were open to admitting when they made a mistake. We learned a lot from VPD Sergeant Vaughn. The VR had monitored VPD's radio calls and knew the duty rotation. We also became 100% certain that the VR and EAR were the same offender. That meant that the Sacramento Sheriff had not only ignored a critical clue, but had gone out of his way to harass and discredit Vaughn and Detectives McGowan and Shipley. We also heard more about how Byrd ran his investigations and Powell managed his office. However, we were still totally unprepared for what we found when we started digging into Donna's murder. There was no investigation, and the evidence handling was literally criminal. Powell's behavior at trial was the worst prosecutorial misconduct we have ever seen or even heard about. Talking to the woman in Oscar's 1965 conviction painted a picture of false arrest and witness intimidation. Even knowing all of that, it has taken us years to truly understand and internalize that we weren't looking at a wrongful conviction, but rather an intentional bad act. It was business as usual for Byrd and Powell, and that's not a theory or a guess. What we still can't believe is the real and true cover-up that continues with D.A. Ward and the California Attorney General's office. The behavior we witnessed and saw documented by ABC 10 felt like it belonged in 1949, not 2019. Attorneys blatantly lying and throwing their oaths in the garbage, all to cover for Byrd, Powell, and D'Angelo. It's nonsensical and highly disturbing. So, it seems like it's time to really dig into three of the men who ran the Tulare DA's office in 1975 to 1978. DA Powell, ADA Brent Blyer, and criminal prosecutor Harvey Zoll. 
what could we possibly find that would be enough for an entire episode covering just three attorneys in a small county DA's office over a couple of years? Enough to fill another banker's box and more. It was difficult to figure out where to start and how to organize this information, but since Powell is the center, we'll start with him. Powell graduated from Berkeley Law School in 1959 and worked in the Bay Area until he took a public defender job in Fresno in 1964. We've seen several news and book references to his work with Melvin Belli, but we weren't able to find any information to confirm or expand on that. In 1965, he became the city attorney for Firebaugh in Fresno County. He ran for judge there in 1970, but was defeated. In July 1971, he was hired to lead the Tulare County Public Defender's Office. Powell had one high-profile defense case, and there's a book about it called a Death in California, which also became an ABC miniseries in 1985. The defendant represented by Powell, Gerald Walker, was convicted on all counts in 1974, and he's still in prison at age 88. His most recent parole hearing was in 2018, and he's not eligible again until 2023. Just as in Fresno, Powell's real energy seemed to be saved for his dream of becoming a judge. At the time of Donna's murder, he had just applied to be appointed to a new Kings County Superior Court position. But the Kings County Board of Supervisors opposed him, and he did not get the post. Powell applied again in 1977 and in 78, when Tulare County ended up having three vacancies on the Superior Court bench. But the governor passed him over all three times. Perhaps the governor had heard about the accusations of incompetence and prosecutorial misconduct that seemed to define Powell's term as DA. Powell's prosecution of Henry Bourbon was typical for his time in office, an embarrassing mess. The path that led to Bourbon's clash with Powell started in Hanford in December of 1961. Hardin's market was robbed of $175 by two masked men with a shotgun. Bourbon was arrested on the hunch of a Hanford PD officer who decided that Bourbon and his friend must be the robbers because while he was sitting in a local cafe, Bourbon changed his food order to go. Seriously, that was probable cause to arrest two men for armed robbery. It was literally described by the officer as nothing more than a hunch based on their food order. Hardin was unable to identify either man, and just as they were about to be released, Hanford PD claimed that they found a key in Bourbon's jail belongings that came from Hardin's market. Even though there was no way to prove the key was actually from the market, no witness ID was possible, and no other evidence or testimony was able to connect Bourbon to the robbery, he was found guilty and sentenced to prison. By April 1971, Bourbon had been released and had started a new life in social services. He was hired to run the Tulare Community Action Agency, which was funded by a combination of county funds and state and federal grant money. The agency provided services for low-income residents and at-risk youth. Orban's hire was immediately attacked, and the opposition to him increased as he terminated contracts with local groups that he accused of skimming service funds to line their own pockets. He made a lot of enemies in a very short time. 
In June 1972, TCSO arrested Borbin for the armed robbery of a KFC in Turlock. Borbin not only denied the robbery, but said he had never even set foot in Turlock. He accused TCSO and the county of falsely arresting him in order to regain control of the community action funds for their friends and supporters. The sole probable cause for the arrest and charges was TCSO's assertion that the KFC robbery matched the 1961 case. The robber was described as clean-shaven with a large scar on his face, and Borbin had a bushy beard and no scar. At the suspect lineup, the robbery victim conclusively said that Borbin was not the robber, and the charges were dropped. Borbin claimed that the entire arrest was politically motivated. In November 1972, he filed a $1 million damage suit for false arrest. There were several other attempts to find wrongdoing by Borbin. Possible missing funds turned out to be the work of the bookkeeper and charges that the agency was engaged in political activity fell apart. In January 1973, the county defunded the agency, and Borvin finally resigned. They literally destroyed an entire social services agency to get him out of his job. Shortly after that, in June 1973, TCSO hired an undercover officer to infiltrate the local drug culture and gather evidence for arrests. The officer, Frank Smith, had long hair and a beard. He used the name Frank Langstaff and said that he sold oil drilling equipment, or Shaftco. His investigation lasted about six months, and in January 1974, his work led to what was being called the largest drug raid in California state history. No surprise, one of the people arrested for dealing heroin was Henry Borbin. As in the KFC case, Borbin said that he was innocent and had never met Smith. Borbin's defense attorney fought the case hard, in court and in the press. The case was almost dismissed when the court reporter's dog got a hold of the paper rolls of the preliminary hearing, and she had to painstakingly tape them back together to prepare the transcript. Then, in April 1974, with no warning, all charges against Borbin were dropped. Smith said that he could not identify Borbin and that it had been a case of mistaken identity. In June 1974, Borbin filed another $1 million false arrest suit against Tulare County and TCSO. The situation with Frank Smith got even weirder in August of 1974 when the manuscript of a book he'd written, 35 Will Get You 200, became a piece of evidence in one of the drug cases. In his book, Smith asserted that the entire drug operation was secretly part of Sheriff Wiley's re-election campaign. Smith said that he was tasked with gathering evidence for 200 arrests with the sole purpose of making headlines and pumping up Wiley as sheriff. Smith claimed that the first person he was told to target was Henry Borbin, but that Borbin never sold him any heroin. Almost every single arrest tied to Smith's work ended up a big zero. The searches turned up no drugs other than a few joints. Most of the charges were dismissed, and there were several mistrials. It was all for show, and when Smith told his story publicly, things got very bad for him very quickly. On August 16th of 1974, after the Tulare Advance Register got a hold of the manuscript, Smith was fired by TCSO. Smith's supervisor, head of narcotics Odell McCoy, was forced to testify about the operation, and when he was asked if the goal of the bus was political, 
to help Wiley. McCoy said, not that I recall. Hardly a denial. It also came out in court that McCoy had ordered Smith to alter his timesheets to avoid paying the required overtime. In September of 1974, Smith was approached by one of the criminal defendants in the drug bust case, Steve Roberts. Roberts told Smith that McCoy had offered to drop his criminal charges in exchange for Roberts' help in a plan to frame Smith on a bribery charge. McCoy asked Roberts to offer Smith $500 in exchange for Smith refusing to testify against him in his upcoming trial. TCSO claimed that they had investigated the accusations against McCoy and determined that he did not ask Roberts to frame Smith. After the bribery frame failed, TCSO and Powell tried to manufacture a different criminal case against Smith. He was charged with embezzlement based on the claim that he had failed to return $92 worth of samples from his sales job in Exeter. Smith was completely cleared of wrongdoing and the judge dismissed the case for lack of evidence in July of 1975. That seemed to mark the end of Smith's troubles with Powell and TCSO, but they were far from done with Henry Borman. At about 8.15 p.m. on February 28, 1975, 21-year-old Richard Gaither was found by a passing driver on Yokel Valley Road, northeast of Exeter. He'd been shot twice in the back of the head, but he was still alive. An ambulance took him to the hospital where he died at about 10 p.m. At the scene, TCSO found evidence that Gaither had been using heroin. In his pants pocket, they found his key ring with the keys to a Buick Riviera, his fiancé's car. Early on the morning of March 1st, a Kings County deputy found the Riviera about 30 miles west of Visalia, near Lemoore. There were no keys in the car. On March 8th, the owner of the car, Gaither's fiance, 21-year-old Rosie Sanchez, was found in the Kings River near Stratford. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed 13 times. The obvious suspect was Sanchez's former common-law husband, Joe Perez, with whom she'd had two children. Perez had made numerous statements expressing unhappiness about the prospect of Gaither raising his children. He and Sanchez had been fighting a lot in the weeks leading up to the murders. According to several witnesses, Perez and Fernando Borbin, Henry's cousin, lured Sanchez and Gaither to the Yokel Road location with the promise of heroin. Fernando then shot Gaither in the head from behind while Perez struck Sanchez on the head and placed her unconscious in the trunk of his Firebird. Fernando then drove the Riviera and followed Perez in the Firebird to Lemoore. Perez removed Rosie from the trunk, stabbed her, and the two men dropped her in the river from a bridge. They left the Riviera nearby and drove home in Perez's Firebird. TCSO found blood that appeared to match Rosie's in the trunk of the Firebird, and both men were arrested. Case closed, right? Of course not. TCSO and D.A. Powell had no interest in prosecuting Fernando Borbin. They wanted his cousin, Henry, whose million-dollar wrongful arrest lawsuit was still pending against them. Besides his relationship to Fernando, Henry had one other potential connection to the case. He had sold the Riviera to Rosie Sanchez. She had paid him $500 down and still owed him $800 when she was killed. 
Because Rosie still owed money on the car, Henry kept two of the four keys until it was paid off. On April 7, 1975, TCSO contacted Henry and asked him to pick up the Riviera from their custody since he was still the legal owner. Henry brought one of the two keys he had, and that became the main piece of evidence against him. The way that TCSO and D.A. Powell told the story, the key was the smoking gun that proved Henry Bourbon's guilt in the double homicide. Obviously, this is beyond stupid. Rosie Sanchez had two keys to the Riviera, and on the night of the murders, she and Gaither each had one on their key ring. Perez and Fernando Bourbon used Rosie's key to drive the Riviera to Lemoore, took it with them, and disposed of it along with the murder weapons and any other incriminating evidence. It's not as if Rosie's second key to the Riviera was located at her home. It was never found. This is also painfully dumb because it assumes that Henry and Perez would have been worried about needing a key to the Riviera before the murder, and Henry would have brought one of his spares to the scene. Really? They knew that Rosie and Gaither would drive the Riviera to the scene, but they thought they wouldn't have the keys to the car on them? The entire case against Henry is poorly contrived, but this point is just moronic. It goes beyond doubtful to completely unbelievable. The gun that was used to kill Gaither was never found, and in fact, the first autopsy completely missed the second bullet, and his body had to be exhumed to explain the two holes in his skull. The entire case was just Keystone Cops from the first minute of the investigation. Eventually, TCSO brought in one of their professional witnesses, a guy named Ortiz, who testified that he had given Henry Bourbon a gun shortly before the murder. Ortiz had a long, long history of showing up as the star witness in criminal cases. He usually had some pending charges that he needed dismissed or was paid as a confidential informant. He was, quite literally, a witness for hire that the Tulare and King's DA's offices used against defendants for decades. We could do an entire episode on all of the likely innocent men that Ortiz helped send to prison. The car key and the supposed missing gun weren't going to be enough. The TCSO suddenly got a break when Fernando Bourbon changed his story and implicated Henry in the murders. To be perfectly clear, D.A. Powell openly dropped all murder charges and a pending heroin charge against Fernando in exchange for his testimony against Henry. Powell also admitted that he had paid Fernando thousands of dollars from the DA's slush fund. So Fernando could face the death penalty for his own involvement or testify against Henry and walk away with his pockets stuffed full of cash. Obviously, this should sound exactly like Rick Carter in Oscar's case and Lester Williams in Mark Soderston's conviction. TCSO had one problem with Fernando's statement against Henry. He had told an entirely different story when he was first questioned. However, they had an explanation for that. Fernando remembered the news story, the true facts, after they were recovered from his memory through hypnosis. We're not making this up. A jury actually believed this. Henry Bourbon's trial started in January of 1976. 
Dee Powell was unable to prosecute the case himself because he was being called by the defense as a witness. His testimony involved the cash payments and charge dismissals against Fernando Borbin and statements he made to a prosecutor in his office about the insufficiency of the evidence against Henry. Apparently, Powell had told his deputy that he did not believe Fernando's statements against Henry, that he had grave concerns about the case, and that it didn't make sense to him that Henry would kill Rosie when she still owed him $800 for the Riviera. At trial, Powell admitted the truth of the witness enticements and his statements, but brushed them off as totally normal. Joe Perez testified that he'd been given sexual encounters in the DA's office and in the back of a TCSO car as enticements to make statements against Henry, but he refused. He said that Henry had nothing to do with the homicides and instead implicated Fernando as his accomplice. Henry offered numerous witnesses who placed him at the funeral home and a rosary for his nephew in Exeter at the time of the homicide. His nephew had been killed in a train versus car accident a few days before. Mike Grubb and Charles Morton from the forensics lab testified that all of the evidence collected from Henry, his house, and his car tested negative. That is, that they found nothing that tied Henry to the homicides or the scenes. There was a lot of testimony about Henry being a functional heroin addict, which was generally offered to show that he was the type of person who would randomly help a friend commit a homicide because, you know, heroin. Henry was convicted in February 1976 and sentenced to death. However, in May, Judge Ginsburg overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. He cited prosecutorial misconduct. Specifically, prosecutors McGinnis and Rodriguez made misleading statements to the jury, repeatedly referred to inadmissible evidence in front of the jury, gave the jury the impression that the defense was hiding evidence, and suppressed testimony that Fernando was actually Perez's accomplice. Ginsburg said that the DA also failed to disclose information that impeached Fernando's credibility, including his own past admissions of participation in the homicides and four felony fraud charges that were pending against him. Ginsburg said that he had no choice but to overturn the conviction because the prosecutor's actions were committed in bad faith. This was just weeks before the start of Oscar's trial. Although Powell appealed Ginsburg's decision, it was upheld. And in November 1978, Henry Borbin was retried, convicted again, and sentenced to life in prison. There was no new evidence. Henry claimed that the charges were part of a long-running dispute he had with county officials and in retaliation for his lawsuits. Perez testified on his behalf and took responsibility for the homicides, but it did no good the jury believed Fernando's version of the events. On appeal, the court found that the prosecutor's conduct during the second trial was highly unprofessional, but did not rise to the level of misconduct needed to overturn the conviction. Henry also lost an appeal based on the inadmissibility of Fernando's testimony because of the hypnotism. The court ruled that because he hadn't raised the issue during trial, he was barred from arguing it on appeal. Henry Borbin became eligible for parole in 1981, but he remains incarcerated at Corcoran. His parole denials appear to be based on his refusal to take responsibility for the crime he denies. 
and drug use offenses in prison. Joe Perez, who admitted planning and committing the double homicide, was released by 1990 and moved back to Tulare County. After Powell's assistant DA accused him of improperly prosecuting Borbin and publicly criticized Powell's behavior and management abilities, Brenton Blyer was promoted to ADA. That was about two weeks before Donna's homicide. Blyer was admitted to the California Bar in June of 1974, and the Tulare DA's office was his first job as an attorney. Eighteen months later, he was the ADA. Shortly before Clifton's trial started, in May 1976, Blyer shared his thoughts on the criminal justice system with the Visalia Kiwanis Club. From the Visalia Times-Delta, May 5, 1976. Attorney urges changes in U.S. legal system. Assistant District Attorney Brenton Blyer told members of a Visalia Service Club Tuesday that America's legal system lacks a moral imperative and needs to change in order to survive. Blyer also offered several proposals that would benefit prosecutors. He suggested that jails and prisons do away with rehabilitation programs for persons convicted repeatedly of felonies. He said that such persons make up a criminal class in American society. He said repeat offenders should be put in prison for several years with no chance for recreation or work activities intended for purposes of rehabilitation. He predicted that such punishment, which he described as warehousing criminals, would reduce serious crimes by two-thirds in the United States. Other suggestions Blyer offered included limiting the number of persons eligible to be represented by a public defender, decreasing the amount of evidence that is not admissible in court, giving prosecutors a chance to appeal cases, putting limits on appeals made on behalf of defendants, and eliminating credit for time served in prison for persons in jail awaiting sentencing. Back in 1975, Henry Borbin was not the only person on Powell's enemy list to find himself under criminal prosecution. Roger Stein was a local criminal defense attorney who was representing a client named Oliver, who'd gotten into a scuffle with a Tulare PD officer during a DUI arrest. Oliver was charged with assault and having a switchblade knife. That was the beginning of a huge battle between Stein and Powell's office that involved hundreds of motions filed by Stein and the eventual jury acquittal of Oliver when the state could not produce the knife and claimed it must have been accidentally destroyed in police custody. It was a huge embarrassment for the police and the DA's office. In January 1976, Stein was arrested and charged with embezzling client funds from his law office account. The case involved $14,000 in total that was, at various times, borrowed and repaid from client trust funds. None of Stein's clients were ever aware of the bookkeeping issue or involved in the criminal case. Stein then filed a complaint with the Attorney General's office and asked for an investigation into Powell, saying that the charges were politically motivated, but the AG refused to look into it. As Stein's trial approached, his attorney filed charges against the DA's office for misconduct by Blyer. 
Stein said that Blyer had lied to the court about the source of the information that supported the charges and about who was responsible for numerous continuances in the case. Blyer also violated court rules in his attempt to contact and intimidate the defense's expert accounting witness. The case finally made it to trial in January 1977. The mysterious source of the original complaint was revealed. It turned out that the main witness against Stein was his legal secretary, Connie Gonzalez. Prior to working for Stein, she'd been Powell's secretary in the public defender's office. The way she told the story at trial, she'd become concerned about her duties in Stein's office and had taken the issue directly to Powell. However, Stein argued that Powell had asked her to make up some dirt on him as revenge for losing the Oliver case. The expert accountant testified that the bookkeeping in the office was incredibly sloppy and funds were moved between accounts without proper documentation, but that no client funds were actually missing. The trial lasted six weeks. The judge was worried about the press coverage and it sequestered the jury in a local motel. In the end, Stein was convicted of one-third of the charges and sentenced to 16 months in prison. The case had cost Tulare County taxpayers about $100,000. Stein was allowed to stay free pending appeal and was disbarred. In June 1979, Stein won his appeal. The court found that the judge erred in interpreting the law. Theft required that Stein intended to deprive the clients of the funds, but no clients actually lost any money. The court said that it was bad bookkeeping and violated the rules for an attorney, but no crime was committed. Stein's law license was reinstated by the bar, and he continued his law practice away from Tulare County. Powell and Blyer were only in charge of the DA's office for a few years but they were constantly in the headlines with Borben, Oscar, and Stein. Their other obsessions were marijuana and pornography. One of their weirdest prosecutions was the case against Wesley Zweifel, the owner of the Mineral King Motel near Exeter. Apparently, guests at the motel could purchase and watch pornographic movies in the rooms, and Powell and Blyer came unglued when Zweifel was acquitted on obscenity charges. Tulare Advance Register, July 25, 1978. District Attorney Jay Powell and his assistant served up a graphic X-rated review of Tulare County pornography Monday to a surprised luncheon audience in Tulare. There was an undercurrent of surprise and some concern over the explicit speech of Powell and his assistant, Brenton Blyer. Powell's discussion included a detailed description of one sexual act on film between a man and a woman. I was glad I had finished my pudding, commented County Executive James Williams after the meeting, referring to Powell's talk. Williams and other government officials said they found Powell's discussion somewhat disquieting. No wonder this guy wasn't re-elected, muttered E.A. Dutch Glanzer, candidate for supervisor, as Powell and Blyer pressed on with their presentation. The prosecution has more and different evidence in the case, but a second trial would be expensive, Powell told the group. He peppered his talk with several jokes. At one point, he joked that many people had turned out for the meeting. He told the men and women that he wasn't going to be showing any films if that was the reason for their attendance. Dead silence greeted the joke. 
Powell said that all 12 jurors in the first trial told his office that they would like to help stamp out pornography if they could under the law. He said the second trial, if there is one, will feature additional films and expert testimony. Oh, God, whispered another audience member. We didn't come to hear this. Blyer called the Zweifel Motel operation part of a highly organized, self-protected industry. It showed closed-circuit sexual films to those people who asked for them. At the first trial, the defense presented similar films shown at Fresno State University to a class in human sexuality. Blyer mentioned those films, adding, in case you want to send your children to Fresno State. He also mentioned specific types of sexual films not yet shown in Tulare County, including bondage and bestiality. After Powell's talk, County Auditor Thomas Logan reviewed Proposition 13 Money Matters, and Luke Augustin, County Public Works Director, talked about new garbage fees. I'm hesitant to talk about refuse disposal and garbage at lunch, Augustin said, but after the district attorney's talk, it's a little easier. The entire case was an insane waste of resources. In November 1977, Zweifel was charged with four counts of displaying obscene material. He argued that the films were not obscene, and since there was no public display, motel customers had the right to see them in the privacy of their own rooms. The case finally got to trial in July of 1978. It was a spectacle since the films had to be shown to the jury in order for them to decide, in their subjective opinions, whether or not general people in California would find the films to be obscene. There was also expert testimony from several college professors who testified that the films were similar to those shown in human sexuality classes and at other area motels that had not faced any charges. The jury agreed and acquitted Zweifel on all charges. However, that was hardly the end. Tulare Advance Register, September 9, 1978. Motel Films Ordered Return. An Exeter area motel owner has won a court order directing Tulare Pixley Municipal Court to return three out of four sexual films confiscated from him. Wesley Zeifel will get back Sex Spa, More Ways Than One, and Satisfaction Guaranteed, confiscated from him by the Tulare County District Attorney's Office. But Zweifel won't get his warped imagination, at least not for the time being. Judge Edward Kim of Tulare County Superior Court ordered return of the other films, his opinion Monday said that another prosecution is pending against Swifel in connection with warped imagination. District Attorney Jay Powell is pressing forward with another case against Swifel. From the Tulare Advanced Register, October 2nd, 1978, X-rated trial moved. Wesley Zweifel, owner of the Mineral King Motel on Highway 198, northeast of Exeter, has been granted a trial location change outside Tulare County. Zweifel is charged with obscenity counts for showing sexually explicit films. Judge J. Patrick Sullivan of Lindsay Justice Court granted the trial change on grounds that Zweifel couldn't get a fair jury trial in the county. Zweifel was acquitted of similar charges in Tulare Pixley Municipal Court in July. Tulare Advance Register, January 10, 1980. Obscenity case dropped. District Attorney William Richmond announced Wednesday that he will seek dismissal of pornography charges against an Exeter area motel owner. Wesley Zeifel, the motel owner, said it's about time after one Tulare Pixley municipal court trial ended in acquittal and more than a year of waiting. 
Zweifel owns the Mineral King Motel between Exeter and Visalia and shows closed-circuit sexual films to customers requesting them. He said the films have continued since his arrest. The remaining charges involved matter that is identical to or no more explicit than that produced in evidence at the previous trial, Richmond said. He cited the expense of a second trial, which would have been held in Fresno County. Zweifel had won a change of trial location out of Tulare County. He said Wednesday that prosecutors had no case. This was strictly a political thing. The judges never had the guts to drop it because of the politics of being against pornography. We hate to think how much money those cases cost Zweifel and Tulare County taxpayers. None of it helped Powell, and the voters had the final say. Blyer left the DA's office with Powell and moved into private practice in Sacramento. The Tulare County Public Defender's Office had a parting gift for Brenton Blyer. Visalia Times Delta, November 8, 1978. Potted, farewell plant looks suspicious. Friday on his last day as assistant to Larry County District Attorney, Brenton Blyer received a strange plant and investigated the giver. The giver was the Tulare County Public Defender's Office, and the gift looked suspect. It looked like a marijuana plant. Blyer and Deputy District Attorney sat around the plant in the investigator's office, debating whether the Public Defender's Office would have the nerve to send marijuana. I don't think it is, Blyer said. Just to make sure, Visalia police were called with instructions to run tests to determine what kind of plant had been delivered. Leo Paoli, a deputy public defender, had delivered it in person. With the potted plant, excuse the expression, was a short note. To Brent, with love from your friends and lovers at the public defender's office. Stay on the high road. The gift could constitute a violation of the state health and safety code, prosecutors said. The code makes it illegal to furnish, transport, or cultivate marijuana. One prosecutor said the cultivation charge would depend on whether the suspected marijuana plant had roots. Blyer celebrated his last day at an office party in the district attorney's conference room without ingesting the plant. He has been the focus of outrage criticism from some defense lawyers, especially those at the public defender's office. Across from the Tulare County Courthouse, the gift donor, Paoli, was amused that Blyer would be spending his time analyzing the gift. Paoli identified the plant as Japanese green leaf maple. He pointed to a whole tree of the stuff growing in front of the office. An expert in the County Agricultural Commissioner's Office thought the plant was actually Faticia japonica, also known as Ariella japonica. In any case, Blyer wasn't mellow about the gift. Asked if the office could prosecute if the plant turned out to be marijuana, Blyer answered, You bet your bippy. You've just heard part one of a special three-part series for episode 40. 